welcome to ONS Energy Talks. My name is Inger Johanne Stenberg, and I am very happy to be able to share some highlights with you from the ONS conference this August. You will hear insight, analysis, and discussions from some of the biggest names and minds in the energy industry in the months to follow. To start us off, we'll bring you the highly relevant discussion on energy security with Megan O'Sullivan, Jason Bordoff, and Narendra Tanea. Before we start, let me give you a short introduction to the three people on the panel. Megan O'Sullivan is a professor at Harvard and a partner at Macro Advisory Partners. She specializes in foreign policy and national security, energy markets, and the transition to a net zero global economy. Jason Bordoff is the co-founding dean of the Columbia Climate School, founding director of the Center on Global Energy Policy, and a professor at Columbia University. He is a leading expert in energy and climate policy and has worked for President Obama, the UN, and is a frequent commentator and writer for international publishers. And last but not least, the moderator for this conversation is Narendra Taneya. He is the chairman of the Independent Energy Policy Institute and founder president of World Energy Policy Summit. He is rated as India's top expert on national and international energy issues. And with no further ado, here is the panel conversation at the ONS conference session, the Energy Security Power Contest. I mean, I, I follow Jason very closely on New York Times. I've subscribed New York Times and I mean, he's one of the most uh, uh, brilliant uh, minds when it comes to energy security. As you all know that he used to advise President Obama. He's still advising the American government, White House, not in a very formal sense. I hope he starts doing it in a formal sense <laughs> as soon as possible. And of course, hey, Megan is advising um, uh, Secretary Blinken. Uh, she's on on uh, the advisory board of uh, uh, Secretary Blinken. So if I may actually start with you, Megan, since you are on the advisory board of uh, Secretary Blinken, uh, I have no sympathies for any country, you know, when it comes to this, what is going on in Russia, Ukraine and all that. Uh, my sympathies are only with the people of Ukraine. But when the American government took the decision, and now it is, of course, not only the American government, but the entire West, to go ahead with the sanctions on Russian oil and gas. And since you're part of that committee, that board, did you really think it through very carefully or, or that was a decision taken in anger? <laughs> Okay. Um, <laughs> I knew this was going to be an interesting conversation. Um, so thank you very much. And it's a pleasure to be here with all of you. And this is the conversation I've really been eager to have um, the whole geopolitical context of, of all the energy, uh, the energy markets and the energy transition. So let me first say, Nahendra, that um, I do sit on Secretary Blinken's advisory board. Um, I don't speak for the administration at all. It's an advisory board of outside um, experts that he consults with from time to time. Um, so I did have the pleasure of, of meeting with him on a few occasions during this time, but um, my views are, are clearly views of my own. I'm a professor at Harvard University and um, a partner of a geopolitical risk consulting firm called Macro Advisory Partners. So I would say, you know, did the U.S. government, did it think through the sanctions on Russia? And I would say um, that it most definitely did. And I don't feel that there's any sense of regret 
on the part of the U.S. government about the sanctions that are in place today. And when I, what I mean by that is when we talk about energy sanctions, as everyone in this room, I'm sure, is well aware, the United States and the U.K. at the moment are among the only countries that actually made it illegal to import Russian oil and gas. But of course, for the United States, that was almost a symbolic move because it was such a small amount of the overall volume. The sanctions that have had much more consequence are obviously the ones that have to do with the financial transactions and the, and the sanctions on the central bank. Um, now, I'll say two more things about the sanctions that get at what I think you're asking is, did we coordinate adequately with our allies and our partners in terms of mapping out a strategy that would work? Yes. And that brings us to the whole question about the European sanctions that are coming into effect in December. And there, I think, and since I'm a private citizen, I can say this, I think this is a great, uh, or a, a great example of a unfortunate thing, which is setting prescriptions before you figure out what the objective is. Because we have a set of sanctions we, meaning globally, that are going to go into effect in December. And there's grave concern that those sanctions are going to be so disruptive to energy markets that it will actually undermine the overall strategy. Um, and that is not just the, the ban on importing um, Russian oil, if you're a European country, but it's also the ban on insuring any shipments of Russian oil, which I think right now about 85% of those shipments are insured by, um, by European companies. And so there is a lot of concern in the U.S. administration that that particular element of the sanctions um, was not adequately thought through and that it could be so disruptive that it would drive prices to such a high level that it would create political discontent, which would undermine the effort to, can, you know, keep pressure on Russia and on Putin in particular. And so now there's quite an elaborate effort, which we might talk about, and I won't go into any great length unless we go in that direction, to create this mechanism called an oil price cap um, that would, in fact, um, create some sort of workaround that would still kind of facilitate the movement of Russian oil, but hopefully at lower prices. So we're really redefining what sanction success means in a way that is a little bit um, ad hoc, I would say. We're no longer saying we're trying to keep Russian oil out of the markets. We're saying we're just trying to limit the amount of resources that Russia gets from selling Russian oil. And that, if that was your objective, you would have designed a different kind of sanctions regime. Let me just say it's a point of big debate whether the assessment of the administration is actually correct. I think a lot of people are very comfortable that the shipping ban is not going to lead to a big disruption. Um, and that's one of those things that you can get incredibly smart people in the same administration having very divergent views. And of course, anyone who's been a policymaker knows if you can't agree on the dynamic and the facts, it's very hard to write a prescription that's going to work to your advantage. So I do think we're in a murky strategic area. Thank you very much. Uh, twice you talked about actually energy prices. Uh, Jason, um, you know, uh, uh, I'll keep my question short and I request uh, you to keep your answer short because I'm going to, we're going to go on a world tour. We're going to cover the whole world in 40 minutes. <laughs> and um, uh, Jason, you know, if you see carefully, whenever there are elections in the U.S., whether for the Congress or uh, for the White House, oil prices start moving down. They start moving southward. Just look at it carefully. And again, we know the elections are coming to Congress and prices have started moving southward. 
Yes, the same every time. Just go on Google and search it. <clears throat> what do you do? What, what, what do you do? What's the secret? Oh, I see. What's the secret? <laughs> yeah. But he, um, first, thanks, uh, Narendra, for, for organizing and moderating this conversation. And thanks to ONS for the invitation to be here. It's just so great after four years to be back in person and great to be up here with my friend and colleague, both academically and at Macro Advisory Partners, Megan O'Sullivan. So I, I don't know that I have any original idea that doesn't come from collaborating with Megan. So uh, you won't hear anything from me that you wouldn't hear better from her. Let me just quickly say on what she was saying about sanctions and where, where they're headed. It is possibly the case that some people didn't think things through. It's also a reflection of the reality that in an integrated global energy market, it is simply very hard to achieve the intended goal of sanctions, which is impose pain on your target without imposing it on yourself. When we live in an integrated world where we depend heavily on a major oil and gas producer like Russia, it is not easy to design something that hurts Russia from a revenue standpoint. And whether you can separate volumes from revenue is a huge open question without the fact that we all have to pay a price for it. So the question is how much of a price one is willing to pay and how do you not actually have a ricochet effect where you take some amount of Russian oil off the market, but the price goes up so much that not only do you have political discontent, as Megan said, but you undermine the purpose because actually the revenue that Putin is getting from selling oil and gas remains virtually unchanged, which has been partly what's happened with natural gas. He's selling much less gas, but gas is so expensive, he's still making the revenue from it. So you still have purchasers around the world funding the war. I think that's why I would just say one thing you said in your remarks, climate security and energy security go hand in hand. Part of that is what you said, which is you can't have climate security unless you have energy security. It's also a reminder of the fact that many of the things that bring you climate security also bring you energy security. And if we were less dependent on oil and gas, which is globally traded and inevitably exposed to geopolitical risk. If it's not Russia today, it'll be something else tomorrow. I think we're in a more electrified economy with less dependence on globally traded hydrocarbons. That's not only what we need to do to reduce emissions, but it would deliver some measure of energy security as well. I think it's an important point to make. Your question about the secret sauce that the uh, US administration has, I don't know that we have a secret lever to control oil prices, but you know, you have clearly seen that when gasoline was $5 a gallon in the United States, which is not even that high relative to some other parts of the world, it was a huge political concern and it motivates and affects to some extent one's foreign policy. I mean, the US foreign policy for the last half century has been contortions about how to make sure that you uh, maintain adequate supply for affordable energy around the world. And that has to some extent limited US foreign policy options. It's part of the reason I think, and we have guests from that region of the world here who can comment on it. Part of the reason countries, particularly Saudi Arabia, at a cost to themselves, bear the cost of maintaining spare capacity. Because when you have a problem in the oil market, there aren't that many places you can pick up the phone and call to moderate it in very short time. One of those is the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So you saw President Biden visit the kingdom recently. I think there were many reasons for that other than oil, but one item on the agenda was certainly whether we would see additional supply come to market. So it does motivate, I think, some element of U.S. foreign policy to engage with other countries and try to think about whether there are sources of additional supply in the market or when one thinks about the Iran deal or something else. The truth is today we have very little spare capacity, very little buffer in the market. And if we do see shocks, like as Megan was saying, the loss of Russian supply once the European ban goes into effect at the end of the year, there are not many levers we have to pull to moderate that at this point, which could lead to a real run up in prices potentially. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Um, 
you know, we for many of us follow Jason, your columns and, and Megan, of course, your writings. Um, so I'm going to basically focus on areas and, you know, uh, which, for instance, you don't write about, but you know them, <laughs> I, I suspect. Uh, so when you look at the U.S. administration today, President Biden administration, like he said, he would never go to Riyadh or shake hand with MBS, which he did. And uh, um, and there are many other things. So, I mean, when I look at D.C. from New Delhi, and D.C. is very important when it comes to energy, energy security policy in Russia, Middle East, and so on and so forth. Uh, since you are both blue uh, in the sense that, you know, you uh, support President Biden and you're actually part of President Biden overall umbrella, uh, who is the energy czar? in the President Biden administration today? Who is that czar? Who is the czar? And if you could kindly help us identify so that we can understand and who controls President Biden government's, you know, Russia policy. I say control means the, the brain, Iran policy, oil price policy, uh, and so and so forth. <laughs> there is there is no czar. There's an yeah. energy secretary, obviously, Jennifer Granholm. There's an important role for energy in the Department of State in a formal capacity with Secretary Blinken and his team at the undersecretary level. There's an assistant secretary. Jason, we all know that. <laughs> yeah. Beyond it. Something we don't know. I don't know that I have anything to tell you that you don't already know that I would say in this forum. <laughs> uh so I, I, I don't know that I have anything to tell you don't already know. Yeah. Megan? No, no. I, I, I'm standing with Jason on this one because they're, yeah, exactly. In this public forum. Um, but even if we were in a private, even if we were having dinner, just the three of us, I think it's a hard question to answer. And essentially, when you're asking who's making policy on Russia and on Iran, um, what's really interesting about the American administrations is not just the Biden administration, but all administrations is um, where does energy fit into the conversation? Right. So the conversation about Iran um, is traditionally managed by national security, foreign policy types. Um, energy is a big piece of that. Russia, similarly, it's uh, you know the national security advisor, the secretary of state. The Biden administration, I would say, is not unique, but it has done this to the greatest extent possible, trying to get climate into those conversations. So President Biden made it very clear that he wanted climate to be at the center of his foreign policy. It's a huge departure from American foreign policy. And in practice, it's been incredibly hard to do because there aren't the structures where you normally would say, okay, what's the climate angle on this problem? And is that is that angle going to trump, you know, the other angles that are traditionally more important having to do with national security? And so there's an effort to do that. Um, but but I would say, you know, that th there there is not a, a consistent energy piece. It is integrated into every foreign policy issue to the best extent possible. And now with a heavier emphasis, I would say, on climate necessarily than energy. Megan, you would make a very good diplomat. I was a diplomat. <laughs> uh, uh, Megan, if I may s stay with you, um, of course, the whole idea was basically to isolate Russia. And what they did in Ukraine, I think we can't have, you know, two views on that. What they did was absolutely unacceptable. And the whole idea then strategy has been to isolate Russia in terms of, you know, um, uh, oil and gas in particular, since we are focusing on energy. Have you succeeded? Has Russia been really isolated? 
Well, it's actually, um, I warned Nahendra that I would like to turn the tables on him at some <laughs> point. So I'm hoping that we can get you to talk a little bit about India. But I think it's very clear that um, Russia is not globally isolated. I think it is um, largely isolated from what we may call, well, from the transatlantic relationships, okay, not even the West in the conventional sense of, of the term. But um, it, it's clear that the entire world hasn't come on board and decided to share the same objectives. Um, but I would say that Russia is in a dramatically different situation than it was six months ago. And, and I'm conscious of, of, of friends from Russia, uh, former students, and and what this all means for them. But I think the future for Russia right now looks very, very different than it did six months ago. Six months ago, I think Russia had a challenge with the energy transition, figuring out how to manage its heavily fossil fuel dominated economy in a rapidly changing world. But it had a, a good reason to think that it was going to get help from the West in doing this, that it had a role to play um, in a hydrogen economy, these types of things. Now, I think the future for Russia and for the Russian economy and for the Russian people is is not uh, is is very um, I would say negative. I mean, this is a country that is going to be even if the rest of the world doesn't join it, it is not going to be integrated into the global economy, and this will have major implications for the standard of living of Russians. It will have implications for the contributions that Russia um, will make to the global economy and 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 the, um, and the the global order more generally speaking. So I'd say isolation is not the only thing that matters. I think it's really a question of, you know, is, is Russia, is Russia going to pay a price for its actions in Ukraine? I think there's no question that it is paying a price and that now is not the moment to say, is it working or not working? Because this is something that is going to play out over a very long period of time. As we know, sanctions always do. I've worked on sanctions for decades. People always say they don't work until they work, right? I mean, that is just the nature of sanctions. And I'll say yeah. one quick thing, which yeah. is I, th I think one thing that, as Megan know, we've talked about that I wonder about and I think is interesting is when you look at the history of energy crises, going back to the 1970s, whatever, I think one lesson from history is our memories are very short when it comes to the cause and how do we respond to an energy crisis. And so one thing I wonder about, as implausible as it seems today, sitting here and listening to Zelensky, for example, yesterday, is if this turns, it turns out to be harder to get off of Russian gas than is often portrayed, the cost of LNG and how expensive it is, the ability to bring hydrogen to the market quickly, and five years from now, 10 years from now, some time frame in the future, and Putin's no longer in power. Um, will people start to think that was a long time ago? And there's one or two pipelines sitting there ready to go, ready to be turned on with incredibly cheap energy. And some populist politician promises people in Europe I can lower your energy bills because I've reset the relationship with Russia. Everything's better now. It seems implausible today, but I, I wonder whether history of energy crises suggests that might be more likely than we think. And can, can I, I just say, yeah. sorry, I'll be very brief, but I think about like, what, what can we leave this audience with in terms of like, what, what can we bring that's different from maybe where you, you've heard the conversation going? I would say... I'm not completely disagreeing with you, Jason, because I think Russia will, you know, Russia has an energy role to play sometime in the future. But I think people would be making a gross misjudgment to think that there is a near term scenario under which normalization of yeah. Russia occurs. Right. I think geopolitically speaking, um, that is not 
any of the scenarios that I think are remotely plausible right here. I mean, there's a worsening of the situation. There's a stagnation of the situation. There may be like a, a situation that's a little bit more of a frozen conflict, but in none of the viable scenarios, do I think Russia kind of comes back into the international community? We talk a lot about how Putin's objectives go beyond Ukraine, but the reality is that the U.S. is not only thinking about getting a resolution in Ukraine. And when you look at what has happened to that country, that infrastructure, that economy, there is no resolution that is not going to take a very long time yeah. to unfold um, and to rebuild that country. And as long as that's the case, and as long as Putin is in power in Moscow, I do not see an American administration normalizing relationships. So, um, you know, I, I agree, agree with you. There, there may be like certain countries that do that. Um, Narendra, if I can ask you about the role of India, um, <laughs> because India is playing such an important role in how this unfolds. Um, but I would say that I want to be clear that at least I think that's the scenarios that yeah. I'm considering. I agree. Yeah, uh, I'm just going to ask before I turn to reply to your India thing, uh, question, uh, a little inconvenient question. That's why I moved closer. <laughs> <laughs> See, let me bring in uh, some devil advocates who say that uh, look at the scenario, energy security, power game before Ukraine. Uh, Europe was growing a bit independent of the United States. Uh, Europe was building closer ties with Russia, especially in the area of energy. Russian oil and gas was like treated like domestic oil and gas. There was a bit of integration happening. And um, the new Europe was not that skeptical of Russia. President Putin, whenever he visited Oslo or Vienna or was treated like a friend, sometime even honored, garlanded, as we say in India. Uh, then came Ukraine, the blunder, and um, some say that U.S. was not very comfortable with Europe getting so close to, to Russia. This integration, because Europe, the second largest economy in the world after the U.S., would have become very independent pole in itself, you know. And then happened Ukraine, and suddenly Europe and America were again very, very close. NATO was kind of reimagined, new NATO was created. And in the process, in a very brief period of just five, six months, we see a new Europe working very closely with the United States. So the two largest economies, the US and Europe, that's like 50% of the global GDP are now working <coughs> together. Many of people outside this are wondering how the future is going to look like when these two large economies, Europe and they together, and no challenge, Russia on the one side, China on the other, the global sound on the other. When they look at the scenario from energy point of view, energy security point of view, trust me, they're worried. So am I. What are you, what are you worried about? both of you. What are you worried about? Well, then I'll, we'll, well the worry is that as it is, you know, the global narratives, the agen agendas, whether security or energy or even polio vaccine, everything was controlled by, by, by Europe and America together. And now with this new Europe and new NATO and new this thing, it's going to be even tougher. That means many countries will have to wait longer to play a bigger role in building global narratives. That's just explanation. Mm -hmm. But my point with well, the question was that this Ukraine thing, President Putin's blunder actually has been helpful to the United States in keeping United Europe on its side for at least another 30 years. Quick take. Thank you. 
Quick take. Okay. Um, it, it's interesting, obviously, and this is part of what makes this so fun, is that we come to this with like completely different perspectives. I think you'd be hard pressed to find um, too many American or European foreign policy experts who would agree with the idea that the US and Europe were kind of largely divergent and, and even competing spectrums. And now suddenly there's unity. I think there's this very long history of this transatlantic relationship, which has been critical to solving almost every um, national security issue that has come our way since since World War II. So I think the friction that we saw, um, you know, was centered there was a lot of friction during the Trump administration um, about questioning the value of this foundational alliance, but that was very much the aberration than the norm. So I guess the first thing I would say is that um, it's interesting. My, my personal view is that we're not in a situation where, which is so unusual. I think we're a little bit back to where we were before the President Trump, you know, really strained um, the alliances. So that would be the first thing I'd say that. It's interesting also, Narendra, when you talk about the reaction of the rest of the world. And I do think there um, I can imagine some concern being elicited, not only right now, because it makes sense that the Europe, and the U.S. would be working together um, to address this challenge from Russia. The question I think really is, how are Europe and, and the U.S. going to work together to meet the challenge of China? And so the American administration is very hopeful that we can actually work with Europe and together actually find an appropriate um, way to work with China, compete with China, confront China, whatever lies ahead with China. In fact, the U.S. administration's new policy as articulated uh, for China is basically, you know, the mantra of invest, align, compete invest in America, align with our allies, compete with China. Now, China hasn't bought into that framework. And so there, there's some problems there we can talk about. But I think that is where the rest of the world might look and say, wow, this, this is daunting. This is challenging. What if we're on the wrong side of what you describe as a divide? But I think that's, that's unclear. And it may be that we look back at this moment and we say this was actually a pivotal moment because I do think, um, and I'm not European and there are a lot of Europeans here, so I'm very conscious about speaking for Europe, which I don't want to do, but it's my impression that you have what's happened with Russia, We've had a crisis with China and Taiwan and the United States unfold this summer. And at least many people I know in Europe are thinking about, wow, there's a relationship here in the sense, do is it useful um, for large authoritarian countries to be able to take over smaller democratic entities? And so there is a connection there. And that might in itself lend uh to reinforcing European and American cooperation um, as, as it looks to uh, <coughs> a decade, a century of greater competition with China. I was going to say, I mean, I, I, Megan said a lot of what I was going to say, including I think people would take issue with the idea that the U.S. and Europe had a frayed relationship before the current conflict. Of course, it's incredibly important, as we've heard repeatedly yesterday and, and the day before, 
to show unity in response to this barbaric aggression invading a democracy in 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 Europe. So that is incredibly important to maintain that that unity. Um, so it's brought countries closer together. Let me make maybe two points to add to what Megan said. I think your question is a really good one and an insightful one because I think part of what you're identifying is added fuel on the flames of a trend that was already underway toward more fragmentation, less globalization, and different geopolitical alignments around the world. And that's being exacerbated not only by this current conflict, but coming out of the pandemic and the challenges we're seeing with supply chains, a shift from cooperation to competition as a frame for how the US and other countries think about China. Where does security of supply come from, whether it's energy supply or supply chains, and we need more diversification. We don't want to be heavily dependent on any one country for energy. If you're in Europe thinking about Russia or supply chains for semiconductors or for critical minerals or something else, if you might be thinking about China, the US huge uh, climate law, this incredible achievement, this, this tremendous climate bill that just passed has a heavy component of industrial policy in it. So if you want these tax credits, you need to make sure you're making a lot of these components in the United States that has the potential to add to trade friction, if not managed properly around the world. Uh, and you were already seeing, and even with this current conflict, I think, you know, with a lot of African leaders here, developing world, emerging market leaders I've spoken to, and you hear it repeatedly after a heavy focus on climate change, which is incredibly important. We need more focus on climate change, leading uh, development institutions, development banks in the US or in Europe to say, for example, we won't finance natural gas projects in a country like uh, India or in Africa. Uh, and then President Biden coming to Europe and saying, we will send you more US LNG. That rubs people in the emerging markets in the developing world the wrong way. What, what about us? And so there are ways in which this is leading to more fragmentation and exacerbating that trend. And then in terms of US Europe unity, um, you know, I'd we will come in the next panel to hear from Tatiana. And one of the questions I'm going to ask her is how Putin thinks about where he's going to, you know, what his strategy is to not allow that to happen. And I think you already see with ruble payments or when there was a focus out of Brussels on demand and the Spanish energy minister saying, well, we aren't the ones that have lived beyond our means. You can already see little fissures starting to crack. And I think a big question is whether they're going to be able to maintain the kind of unity that was the premise of your question as this crisis gets much worse in the months and maybe years to come. Thanks. Uh, I'll quickly answer, uh, Megan, your point on India in 60 seconds. Um, you see, yes, we are buying some oil from Russia. Um, there is no love for Russia. It's just pure economics. They offered a good <coughs> discount. Our balance of payment was in trouble. Prices were going up. Poor people were suffering. And we have known Russia. The fact is, whatever you might say or may look like, Russia has always stood by India in Security Council. Mm. And, uh, uh, and we know what happened in Afghanistan. We trust the United States, but what you did in Afghanistan actually was scary. After 20 years, you left them to their fate, children, women, and they're still suffering. Go there. We were, we were very close to Afghanistan. They're still suffering. They're dying. So uh, it's no love for Russia. They're friends, like other countries. Uh, and they offered a good discount. Our refineries are not designed for Russian crude. So it's not going to go on forever. We have never imported more than 2% crude from Russia. Though, actually, Russian company Rosneft owns a refinery in India, 400,000 barrels refinery. 
Still, even that refinery didn't buy a single drop of Russian oil in the entire 2021. Not a drop. So it's just a temporary thing. And But that said, at the same time, uh, we have good ties with Russia. Uh, Russia. America is a very important strategic partner. Uh, we want to trust the United States 100%. And uh, but what happened in Afghanistan did put many question marks there. But but we are with the U.S. and the West on Indo-Pacific. China is a threat. That's how we look at China. And we are with the United States and Western countries 100 percent on that. But at the same time, we want you to get out of solve the Ukraine issue fast so that you can focus on Indo-Pacific, which is a much bigger challenge. And we really don't understand. And there's also a question for you, Megan. Your speaker was there recently. When you're so busy in Ukraine, over Ukraine, Iran, you are still not able to deliver. Saudi Arabia, you are still learning to relearning to handle. And the oil prices are going up. At that time, her trip to Tehran, what exactly you achieved out of it? Right. Um, <laughs> First, I just want to say something about Afghanistan in the sense that I, uh, and again, not an administration official, I did work for President Bush on Afghanistan for many years, spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. And I do uh, think it's a tragedy in the way that the United States ended that 20 years. And I hope there can be more support and attention put on um, the situation in Afghanistan, which is truly tra tragic and I think has <clears throat> to somewhat been uh, lost in the geopolitical um, conversation, given the other things unfolding. But um, so what what were we thinking? So there, it's always interesting. We I think it's more what was um, Speaker Pelosi thinking, because I know this is something that is very hard for people outside the United States to understand. Um, but and it's impossible, like we can't expect that even our allies in Asia to uh, understand that it is my firm impression that she did not go with the support of President Biden. This was not something the administration wanted. This was something that Speaker Pelosi wanted to do. This was something important to her. She has been a staunch supporter of Taiwan. She's been a big defender of human rights in China. And there's a lot of speculation in the United States that the November elections will lead to a situation where she is no longer speaker. And uh, she wanted to go to Taiwan while she was still speaker of the house. And so this was, I would say that this was an irresponsible moment to go to Taiwan. Um, I actually went in an American Air Force plane. Um, yes. You know, I, I mean, so I think there's no question that her visit became an excuse uh, or it became a catalyst to um, heighten the tensions between the U.S. and China. Um, what we saw is a response for from China that clearly wasn't just ginned up to respond to um, Speaker Pelosi's visit, but was something that China has been building these capabilities. It has possibly been looking for an opportunity to show the region, to show the Taiwanese, to show the U.S., to show the Chinese people that it has much greater capabilities than it did in the last Taiwan crisis um, to deal with challenges to the status quo, which and I think there's a good argument for why it's understandable that China sees America as changing the status quo. But rather than going into that, I would just say that even though the, the Speaker Pelosi's visit, I think, was a, a trigger in some ways, it's not the cause 
of the tension between the U.S. and China. And if anything useful came out of that visit, and I would say the calculation, what did what did the United States get out of that visit versus what did it what was negative, I would say the balance is entirely on the negative side. There's not obvious to me that there was a lot gained from that visit. Um, but I think it just it is a demonstration to all of us how serious the Taiwan issue is. I think the U.S. repeatedly, consistently underestimates how important Taiwan is to the Chinese and to Xi Jinping in particular. And I think it is an opportunity for our allies in the region to have a look at the Chinese response, to think about what would happen? Where would they stand? What their response might be? Because it seems more and more likely, um, not inevitable, but likely that there will be some kind of confrontation over Taiwan in the in the coming years. Um, I went to Taiwan uh, at the behest at the request of the Biden administration, five days after the invasion of Ukraine, I went with a couple of former colleagues from government. We were former officials going there, but, you know, to talk to the Taiwanese about what lessons we all might take away from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and what it might mean for China's calculations, for Taiwan's calculations. And there is really a big rethink about whether or not Taiwan has to prepare itself to fight an aggressor more like the Ukrainians have than they have traditionally thought about it. Um, Jason, I, let, allow me to come to you, and I'm, I'll wish for a conspiracy theory in your ears. Um, everyone everyone yes, listening yeah, while you whisper? They're, all, okay. they're brothers. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> there is a conspiracy theory get, you know, getting a lot of traction, at least in our part of the world. Uh, that the United States actually is very keen now to lift all sanctions against Iran because they want to prop them up as a counterbalance, a Shia power counterbalance to Saudi Arabia because they're not, they're not very comfortable with Saudi Arabia because MBS has his own mind and he's taking his country into a different direction to more assertive, more proud, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but if there is any truth in this conspiracy theory that you want Iran as a counterbalance in the Middle East to Saudi Arabia and maybe even Turkey at some day. If there is any truth in it, why is it taking so long? I mean, Iranian oil at the end of the day, I mean, the world needs Iranian oil. We do. We, a couple of our refineries are actually designed for Iranian oil only. We have modified them for some time now. And at the same time, there are reports Russia and Iran are trying to create a gas OPEC and other countries may join. So gas OPEC, you have this theory to counterbalance to Saudi Arabia, but there seems to be nothing happening. Jason. Uh, yeah, there's, well, let me comment on maybe the conspiracy theory and then what's happening. I think you're right that there's a strong desire in Washington to get an Iran deal done. I have a different view on what the motivation for that is. I think the motivation is because we want to prevent Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons capability. And so I think the decision of the Trump administration to pull out of the Iran deal is one of the catastrophic decisions in U.S. foreign policy history because there was no alternative. There was no plan to say what now? Was it a perfect deal? No, most deals are not perfect. But was it did it have a reasonable prospect of a success to at least delay for a significant period of time uh, Iran's capability to acquire nuclear weapons? I think that was the direction we were headed on. And the consequence of pulling out of it was Iran restarted much of that program and demonstrated that it was moving in a direction where 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 that uh, capability would 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 be 
would be much closer at hand. So that is not an acceptable outcome, <clears throat> not just for the U.S., but for Israel and other uh, countries that are neighbors of Iran and the Gulf. So the motivation for saying, can we reconstruct that is, is, is that first and foremost, in my view. Uh, and it's not easy. It's not easy, partly given how much time passed. I think it probably would have been a bit easier if it was able to be done very, very quickly. Once the Biden administration came into power, there were a couple of reasons why that why that didn't happen. And once some period of time passes, obviously, a huge amount of trust has been lost. If you're on the Iranian side and you're wondering, am I going to have a deal that I can have some confidence in with changes in U.S. administration if Trump's reelected or who knows what happens in, in U.S. politics? Uh, but also there was a time frame. Uh, in which uh, many of those provisions were in effect. And then once a number of years passed, you sort of need to reopen several provisions in the deal. And, uh, and then new issues get inserted, including other regional security uh, uh, issues. So I think that has what has made it very complicated. We could obviously have a long conversation about yeah. exactly where the negotiations stand uh, now. Jason, I'll just left with one minute. So 30 seconds each for both of you. I start with you, Megan. Ukraine, Russia, all that's going on. Do you see any light at the end of the tunnel? Why can't Russia and U.S. sit together and help the ordinary people of Ukraine? Give them freedom back. Why can't they talk? <laughs> any light at the end of the tunnel? 30 <clears throat> seconds. Uh, 30 seconds. Um, there will eventually be light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I, At this moment, I do not see that there is the environment or the desire on either side. We heard from President Zelensky yesterday. He said very clearly, no concessions. Um, the President Putin has, there's very little evidence that he thinks now is the time to negotiate either um, because he still has a plan. He believes that he can sow division within Europe and that this will be to his great benefit. And I think many of us believe that his ambitions have to do with resetting the European security order. So that would say that this is not the time <coughs> to negotiate. So at some point, um, there will be light at the end of the tunnel um, because all wars eventually morph into something else. Uh, but, you know, it's wrong to think that most wars end by negotiation. That's actually not true, or at least the wars that don't flame up again. Uh, majority of wars that actually end forever is one side is victorious. Um, and we're certainly not in a situation where we can anticipate that either side would be victorious right now. So it's very hard for me to be optimistic as much as I would like to see the suffering of the Ukrainian people end. Jason, we're over time. 30 seconds. Please. Yeah, we, 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 um, I'm going to make a I'm going to answer a slightly broader question, because there's one thing that I think hasn't come up as much that I just is important to me being the director of an energy institute, but also a climate school. So the topic is energy security power contest, I think, for this panel. We've talked a lot about energy security and power contest in the near to medium term. I want to make sure we don't lose sight of the longer term. And so when we think about geopolitical risks, of migration, of conflict, of droughts, of refugees. Climate change is a massive geopolitical risk. And I think as Megan and I wrote in Foreign Affairs last year, the energy transition itself is going to be one of the most significant sources of geopolitical risk in the years to come. So when you think about where energy security comes from and where power, national power in energy comes from, 
It's managing that transition and also leading in it. So when we thought the U.S. climate bill was dead because Joe Manchin didn't support it, Megan and I co-authored a piece in foreign policy that said this is not only a defeat for climate, it's a defeat for U.S. national security and U.S. energy influence and U.S. energy security because the leaders, the, the, the influence in energy markets in the years to come uh, are going to be those who become more energy secure because they reduce dependence on globally traded hydrocarbons, as I started with, but also are able to demonstrate technological and global diplomatic leadership in the technologies we know we are going to need to deal with the climate crisis, not just renewables, but critical mineral security supply chains, the refining and processing of those, hydrogen, carbon capture, the full suite of technologies that we're going to need. So I just want to make sure we don't end the conversation about geopolitics and energy and energy security without talking about climate and also about the clean energy technology solutions that are going to be a massive part of the energy system in the decades to come. You just heard Jason Bordoff, Megan O'Sullivan, and Narendra Tanea discuss energy security at the ONS conference Tuesday, 30th of August, 2022. Stay tuned and subscribe to ONS Energy Talks, where you find your podcast to hear more highlights from ONS in the months to come.